Several years ago, I was uh, attending a pastor's conference in Charlotte, North Carolina, picked up a cab, and I don't know, but I've, I've had quite a few cab drivers that have Muslim faith, and so it's been great. I've had a lot of really interesting conversations, and I was riding with this guy. We were talking, found out, you know, he was Muslim, and I just said, hey, who do you think Jesus is? And uh, he said, well, he's a prophet, the son of Mary. And I said, yeah, so did he have an earthly father? And my Muslim cab driver said, well, well, no, it's one of the miracles of Jesus. So that's interesting. So has anyone other than Jesus ever been born of a virgin? And he's like, no, that, no one has been like that. And so just in a very non-confrontational way, I just tried to explain to him that Jesus' supernatural birth, his perfect life, his death to, on a cross to pay for sins, and his resurrection is God's indication that this one is fully man and fully God. He is the Savior of the world. Now, he agreed that it was miraculous how Jesus was born. But when I said that Jesus is God, he's like, no, that, that, that cannot be true. And uh, I said, well, that really is the issue, isn't it? Is Jesus God? Because if he's not God, why, then this just doesn't really matter. And I said, but it's interesting, when Jesus was on the earth, that's actually one of the reasons why the Jewish leadership wanted to kill him, because he was claiming to be God. Remember, like in the Gospel of John, John 10:30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And the Jews said, that is blasphemy. In fact, they picked up stones, and they were going to kill him. And they said, John 10, verse 33, they said, the Jews are saying, for a good work, we do not stone you, but because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And my Muslim cab driver said, well, some men just put that stuff in there about Jesus. I said, well, why do you think that? Because there, he said, there's only one God. And uh, some people just put that in there to make these things up about Jesus. In essence, what he is saying is the Bible is unreliable. There's just some thoughts that have been put in there by men and that's one of the reasons why you cannot trust this book. And I'd like to ask you this question. How do you know that the Bible is the word of God? And why is that important? Now, in a church, there's a lot of people that say, oh, yep, you know, I believe that the Bible, that's the word of God. That's great. But how do you know? What, how, do you, how are you certain that that is the case? Well, the text we're going to look at today in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 is so critical to our understanding of what this book is. God wants, first of all, every person in, to recognize what the Bible is, that it is the truth of God. And we looked at these verses last week, but this morning we're going to do a deep dive as to what is this book we call the Bible. Chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the Bible actually states clearly, chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writing to Timothy, his protege, and saying, you need to understand all Scripture is inspired, literally the breath of from God. It is God breathed. And this morning I want to give you just a fourfold description about the Word of God, what we believe about the Scripture, the Bible. 
just like the text says, we believe that it is inspired. It is spirit-directed, and it is air-free in its production and the original manuscripts. Now, when we hear the word inspired, like you see in 316, sometimes we, we think of this. Yesterday, when I was out there in my backyard baking in the summer heat, I saw this butterfly just fly by me, and I started fixating and focusing on it, and I was inspired to write this poem, okay? And and it's the idea that I was overcome with emotion, I had these thoughts, and I wrote about this butterfly. That's not how the Bible uses the word inspired. It literally means it's from the breath of God, that men spoke from God. So the process of inspiration you can find in the book of like 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It states, but but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men moved by the holy spirit spoke from god so god reveals himself by men moved with the by the holy spirit they spoke from god the bible claims that it comes from god the bible isn't a collection of like Stories about what people think about God, about myths or fables. No, the Bible clearly states that the scripture is inspired. The writers wrote from their own personal experience, their own backgrounds. They used human language and they used a variety of uh, different forms. Anything from narrative to hyperbole to metaphor to parable to poems. But God had written exactly what he wanted Writing, And he used their background, their talents, their experiences, their thoughts, but he had written what he wanted. And the result is, if the process is inspiration, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, the result is, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. And I want to make a point here. It's not that the human authors are inspired, like these were just inspired men. But the writings, when God had them write scripture, it is the scripture is inspired by God. And so sometimes critics say, you know what, the whole idea of believing that the Bible is God's word, that it's inspired. That can't be true because there's a lot of wicked stuff in the Bible. For instance, like in Judges chapter 19, there is a horrific rape. And a disembodiment of this girl. And I'm like, no, no, no. The Bible can't be inspired because it has that kind of wickedness recorded. I want you to know that inspiration guarantees its accuracy, not its divine approval. Context, what God reveals in the word, will tell you whether or not God approves or disapproves of actions. But you need to understand that it is accurately recorded. So we believe that the Bible, just like the text says, is inspired. It is literally from the breath of God. We also believe that it is inerrant, meaning that the Bible is fully truthful in all of its teachings. It's free from error in its original manuscripts. And inerrancy, the idea that the Bible is without error, it's actually rooted in the character of God himself. So God, one of the things we know about God is that he cannot lie. Like it says in Titus 1-2 or in Hebrews 6-18, for it is impossible for God to lie because his character is truth. He is the embodiment of truth. He is the establishment of truth. 
So if God cannot err and the Bible is the word of God, then the word of God, this Bible, is without error. It is true. It's what God says is true about himself, about humanity, about sin, about life, about eternity, about hell, about death, about purpose, about why we're here, how we got here, and where we're going. We believe that the Bible is inerrant. It is fully truthful. We also believe that the Bible is infallible, meaning that it is trustworthy. Not only is it true because it came from God, we believe that it is trustworthy. It's incapable of failing. It is dependable. And we also believe that the Bible is authoritative. It is to be obeyed. It's God's authority on revelation for life, about his disclosure of himself, about instruction for life, guide for faith, and we believe that is the authoritative record of events that God has accurately recorded that which took place. Now, you need to understand that God originally gave these words, they were written down, and they were copied by scribes, meticulously slow, and uh, meticulously, I'm sure it was slow, but meticulously accurate. And it's kind of beyond the purview of this morning, but the scribes took great care and detail to copy the words, and they made sure that the manuscripts were accurate. Now, you will find, because we have thousands of manuscripts, that every once in a while, a scribe might create an error. And even some of the uh, other guys that were copying these scribes would sometimes even make notes, like, for instance, like they got a number wrong. But in no major doctrine or any major Bible theme is anything uh, affected that would affect the truth that is presented. These are minor copious errors. We would know, because of the thousands of manuscripts that we have, that the text we have, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, these are, there are, uh, they are absolutely correct. One scholar by the name of uh, A.T. Robertson said the New Testament we have is 99.9% pure. And we know from all the manuscripts that we have that we have with a degree of 99% certainty the words as they were given. Now, that is pretty bold to say that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative. And that works good. And I would expect that in a crowd like this, that a lot of folks are like, yep, that's right. But I got a question for you. How do you know? For instance, if one of your non-believing family members or friends, or it comes up at work or in school says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're just taking it all by faith. But how do you really know that the Bible is the word of God? How would you answer that question? Well, this morning, I want to give you support for the claim that the Bible is the word of God. Because this is one of the key questions the world is answering. Is this book really from God? Because if it is, then it requires that we heed it. So how do you know? Well, let me give you some different support for the claim that the Bible is the word of God. First of all, let me show you internal consistency. The Bible is a rather fascinating book. You have 40 different authors. They wrote 66 books. They did so over a span of 1,500 years. They came from a wide variety of experiences, these human authors of every social plane, anything from a herdsman to a shepherd to a king. They come from a kind of a wide variety of areas, all sorts of different circumstances, and yet there is an absolute unity of thought. Think of it. 1,500-year period of time, absolute unity. 
you find that this theme that there is the sovereign God's establishment and working in the world and the redemption of his people through the provision of the Savior, Jesus Christ. You see this theme that God is, that God acts, that God redeems, and that he reigns. And there is this marvelous unity, not this massive contradiction. It's proof, and it just shows you that this unity of thought, that this is a supernatural book. Let me give you another claim that supports that the Bible is indeed the word of God. And and to me, this is overwhelmingly convincing. And that is fulfilled Bible prophecy. In the Bible, there are literally hundreds of prophecies, predictions about what is going to take place in the future at the time they are written. And there are, in many cases, hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, statements that were made in the past that have come true. So, for instance, you've got what's called general prophecy. These are prophecies regarding... um, like the overthrow of a city, overthrow of an empire, uh, activities for a particular people, the desecration and the destruction of Jerusalem, its rebuilding. And so what we have are called general prophecies. So an example of this, uh, like, for instance, there was a guy by the name of Joseph. He interprets the dream of Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh has this dream, and Joseph says, God is revealing to you what is about to happen. There are going to be seven years of plentiful harvest, followed by seven years of famine. You'll want to get prepared for the famine. God is revealing this to you. And indeed, it happened just that way. Probably the most fascinating uh, general prophecy, one that I, I find overwhelmingly convincing to show us that the Bible is indeed the book from God, is found in Daniel chapter 2, where God reveals in a dream to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He reveals to him the kind of panorama of Gentile history as it's going to unfold, starting with the Babylonian Empire. And there's a guy by the name of Daniel. He had been uh, exiled from Jerusalem about 605 B.C. He and a bunch of other kids were brainwashed. They were preparing to exile a bunch of Jews into the Babylonian kingdom because Babylon was the ruling empire. And this guy, Daniel, would not compromise his faith. And he was recognized as one who seemingly had the abilities that only God could give. And so Daniel gives the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And he says, listen, God is revealing you what is to come. And he lays out in Daniel chapter 2, it speaks of, first of all, the Babylonian Empire, which will be followed by the Medo-Persian Empire, which will be followed by Greece, which will be followed by Rome, which will be followed by the Messianic kingdom, a kingdom that will not end. And he uses symbols to reveal what is to happen. But it is with absolute clarity. And guess what? It's happened just the way God said it would. Now, those are general prophecies. But there are also what we call messianic prophecies. These are prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. God has promised a deliverer. Promised one who would take away sins where God literally is going to enter into humanity, this Messiah, in the Greek uh, refer to him as Christos, Christ. And there are, on one count, about 333 prophecies regarding the coming Messiah. And in Jesus' first coming, he fulfills over a hundred of them. Now, some of you may be familiar with this, uh, but let me, let me just give you some of the prophecies regarding this Messiah. 
God does so because he doesn't want the world to miss, I am sending you my deliverer, my anointed one. So let's give me, like, it gets started really early in the Bible. Genesis 3.15, this deliverer is going to be born of a woman. Then it gets narrowed down to the line of Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and Genesis 22, 18. This deliverer is going to come from the family of Abraham. That's followed by, in Genesis 49, verse 10, that this one king who will reign is going to be from the tribe of Judah. And he is going to be born, according to 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13, he will be an eternal son of David. There is a promise that David will have a son that will reign forever, and he's always going to be the eternal son of David. Then it actually says, like in um, Micah 5.2, written about 700 B.C., that you need to know that the Messiah will be born in a little shepherd village called Bethlehem. Micah 5.2. That he will be born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. That narrows the field down significantly, doesn't it? Then it says, like in Isaiah 53, that this one will suffer and die for our sins and that he will make his appearance to do so at about A.D. 33, which Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26, gives the actual time when this will happen. And that he will rise from the dead, like Psalm 16, verses 10 through 11, or Isaiah 53, 10. When you look at, like, the very ancestry of David, that he's born in Bethlehem, all these specific details, even skeptics, when they see that this is written hundreds of years in advance, have to take note that this is uncommon. This is not just some people kind of looking at the landscape of the land and kind of throwing out some guesses. This has to be a supernatural book. What happens is the messianic predictions narrow it down to such an extent that only one person could go through that door. There's a guy by the name of Peter Stoner. He is a scientist in the area of mathematical probabilities. He wrote in his book, Science Speaks, that if we take just eight of the Old Testament prophecies that Christ fulfilled, we find that the probability... Of this coming to pass in one individual is one is, is 10 to the 17th power. Now, that's a number that you and I cannot comprehend. So then he gives this illustration. If we were to take one, 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars and we lay them on the face of Texas, that they would cover the state two feet deep in silver dollars. That's 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars. we got a pretty decent-sized state, right? Can you imagine it covered two feet deep with silver dollars? That's 10 to the 17th power. And he says, so the, the chance of one man fulfilling eight prophecies is the same as if you mark one of the silver dollars, you put it into the state with two feet deep in silver dollars, you mix it all up, And then you get your best guy to select that coin with his eyes blindfolded. So let's say we get Bubba and we get him and we feed him a nice brisket dinner and we promise him, hey, listen, you'll even have some peach cobbler if you can select the coin. How many of you think that Bubba's going to make the selection and he's going to get the coin? Uh, What if you even took the blindfold off? 
I mean, he could spend his whole life probably never finding the coin, right? And what Stoner says is this. The chance of Bubba picking the right coin, the one that's been marked, is the same chance of one individual fulfilling eight of those prophecies. I will tell you that that, to me, is staggering. It shows us this is a supernatural book. In my own journey to coming to place my faith in Christ, prophecies had a, a key role of telling me this is not a normal book. I remember when I was, uh, these two college guys were showing me prophecies, like, like from Psalm 22, which gives explicit detail of crucifixion. And yet, crucifixion wasn't even a known form of execution a thousand years before Christ. Or the, the place named of his birth, Micah 5 2. How can these details be given like that and they be fulfilled in such explicit detail? You see, this book. Um, reflects an origin that is beyond what mere mortals could accomplish. Let me give you another support why we believe the Bible is a wor- the word of God. Its effect on human history. More than any other book, the Bible has influenced the lives of millions of people. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, uh, they state that although it's impossible to obtain the exact figures, there is little doubt that the Bible is the world's best-selling and most widely distributed book. Tried to do research to find out how many Bibles have been produced. Uh, the most current research from August 28, 2016, they put the estimate at this. 6,000,000,000 million Bibles. Its effect on human history is staggering. Despite whatever attempts it might be to rip this book out of any society, this book influences lives. Let me give you another reason why we believe the Bible is the word of God. It's clear instruction about relationship with God. You would expect that the book, that if God has given us a book, supernaturally, that it would talk about how you and I can have a real relationship with God, with Him, to know Him, to enjoy Him. And that's exactly what this book does. Remember, if you've got your Bibles open in 2 Timothy 3.16, look at verse 15, where it says, And that from childhood... You've known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to faith, which is in Christ Jesus. If you want real relationship with God, you want peace and hope. You want forgiveness of sins of what you've done. You want the promise and security of knowing that I'll be with him forever. That heaven is my destination to be with God forever. The Bible tells you your faith must be in Jesus. That's the gospel. It's written right here. God gives us and shows us that relationship with him is found in believing in his son. And he goes to a great length to focus all of our heart, attention, and faith on Jesus. Let me give you another uh, support for the claim that the Bible is the word of God. The self-claims of the Bible itself. The Bible on multiple occasions states that it's from God. Like statements like, Thus says the Lord, God spoke, the Lord testified. There are over like 1,300 expressions like that just in the prophets. In the Old Testament, there are over 3,800 references of God giving the word. In the New Testament, about 40 times, you find the statement about the word of God. So this book states it's from him. Let me give you another. I'm going to give you two more. This next one I find to be very convincing why we believe the Bible to be the word of God. And that is Jesus' own personal views regarding Scripture. 
So the very one who by his life, death, and resurrection authenticated to the world that he is God believed that the Bible is true and authoritative. In fact, you can find him praying before he goes to the cross, John 17, 17, he prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What did Jesus believe about the Bible? He believed that it is true. Matthew 4, 4, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so you find Jesus making statements like in Matthew 24, verse 35, he says, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. So he speaks with authority and he believed that the scriptures were absolutely true. Now, not everybody believes that the Bible is absolutely true. Several years ago, I was talking with one of my relatives at a Christmas break and we were talking about the Bible and he makes the statement. I don't believe that the Bible is completely true. I mean, how can it be? I mean, I cannot believe that story about Jonah and the whale. I mean, no, I just can't go there. And I'd say, well, I mean, you've got a point there. That is not an everyday occurrence, is it? In fact, the Bible doesn't say it was a whale. It could have been, but it's just this large fish. And that Jonah's in the belly of this large sea creature for three days. But it is interesting. Jesus believed that it was true. In the Gospel of Matthew, on two different occasions, Jesus actually used Jonah being in the, way, the body of this sea monster for three days as a picture of what is about to happen to him. Three days, he is going to die, but he is going to rise again. You can find it in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, and chapter 16, verse 4. If Jesus believes the Bible is true, I would want that to influence my thinking. Or what's another one that kind of comes up when you say, well, we believe that the Bible is true and that it's the word of God. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Except like, what are you going to do with this Noah and the flood? Come on. Jurassic flood, being a, building this big ark, getting all the animals on the ark. I mean, haven't you been to the zoo? They got to put cages around them because they kill each other, right? What do you mean getting all these animals on a big boat? That's a nice story. It works well for kiddos, but it can't be true, Right. Very interesting. Jesus believed it was true. When Jesus was talking in Matthew chapter 24 about this, his second coming and the judgments that are going to come, do you know what he used as an illustration? He says, I want you to know that just like Noah entered the ark and judgment came, that's what it's going to be like when I come. I'm going to bring judgment. In essence, you better be in the ark. Jesus believed that it's true. You better believe in me because judgment's coming just like it came with Noah when I brought rain upon the earth. And Jesus passed on the same authority to the New Testament. In John 14, 26, he said this, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring your, to your remembrance all that I said to you. So he actually works the whole Trinity in. Jesus, the Spirit, the Father, they will bring to your remembrance exactly what I want you to write. And then let me give you the final reason why we believe the Bible is to be the Word of God. We've covered a host of reasons, including Jesus believed it to be true. But I want to give you one more. It is the confirming testimony of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit proves to believers there is something that we cannot fully explain, but that when you and I place our faith and trust in Jesus, there is a belief that comes that this book is from God and that it is true. It can't be entirely explained, but there is a settled sense of peace. It's been my experience. It's been the experience of millions of others. Abraham Lincoln said this, that the Bible is God's best gift to man. And this is what God wants every person to know, to recognize what the Bible is. It is the truth of God. But God also wants every person to realize why the Bible has been given. You see it? Verse 16, chapter 3. All scripture is inspired by God. It is the truth of God. And he wants you to know why it's been given. It's profitable, beneficial for teaching. Has the idea that God has given everything we need to know for life, for godliness. He has given us to us in this book. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof. This has the idea that God uses his scripture to correct Wrong belief, wrong behavior, wrong attitudes, wrong um, values that we have. God uses his word to show us this is not right because he reveals that which is true. And not only does it bring reproof, that would be one thing if the Bible just shows us where it's wrong. But God actually brings, what does the text say? Correction. It literally sets us in order. He not only tells us what's wrong, but he tells us what's right, what's true. Not just what's error and what's false. But in what is true and right and holy, he gives us, he corrects it. And the idea of correction is to put something in its proper condition. If you want to be right, right with God, it comes by faith in Christ. You want to live right. He actually reveals that in his word. Finally, he says, and that it is profitable for training in righteousness. This is the word used for training of a child. So God develops his children. Like Peter says, First Peter chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, just like little children need food to grow. So God understands and knows that his spiritual children need food to grow. And that food that he gives is the Bible, the word of God. Let the spirit of God take the word of God to accomplish the work of God in a believer's life. He equips us, makes us fully prepared for everything we need for life, for the good works to experience the good life of walking with God and knowing Christ, to have wisdom in life and the promise of eternity, it's found in this book. And so when it comes to the Bible, if the Bible is not God's word, frankly, you can pick and choose what you're going to believe, when you're going to believe it. You don't like something, just cut it out or ignore it. On the other hand, though, if indeed the Bible is from God, I need to believe it and heed it or faces the consequences for rejecting it. See, we understand and believe that the Bible has been given to us to shape everything about our life, our comprehension, our convictions, how we live. It shapes how we relate to people, our friends, our family, people we don't know so well, people in society, sinners, saints, even our enemies. It is the Bible that tells us what relationship with God really looks like and how we can really enjoy God and see the beauty of Christ. It's the Bible that actually tells what the church is, how it's to be run, what we focus on, what our mission is, why discipleship is so important, why maturity matters. 
All of this is from the Bible. God gives us his word to do that. And so if the Bible is God's word and it's necessary for growth, then we've got to find ways of just regularly incorporating the scriptures into our life. You just find some time. You start making it a priority. For some of you, this has been, a, been almost like a lifetime. And you just, as you're reading, you ask, like, what is this passage teaching? Ask, why is it here? And Lord, how do you want me to respond? We have a simple vision here at Fellowship. We want you to grow deep in knowing God and his word. We want you abiding in Christ. And as you grow deep in knowing his word, you know what happens? The character of Christ begins manifesting itself in each of us and all of us. And we treat each other differently. Our relationships grow. And how we see our work becomes like a ministry. And we live as God intended, trusting in Christ and having his character reflected in our lives. You see, God brings transformation through his revelation. And friends, this has always been the pattern that God intended. The early church, let me just show you how they took the Bible. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes this. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is. The word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. This isn't just the word of men. This is the word of God, and it accomplishes its work in you. The question is, will we heed it? You see, that's why God has given us his word, to transform our lives. There's a pastor by the name of Tim Keller, and he wrote of uh, one of his relatives that, I'm sure every family has one, refuses to use the seatbelt, you know? And so they would, like, nag him when they'd see him, like, man, you really need to be using a seatbelt? Really, you know, click it or tick it? Like, nah, you know, not doing it. Well, one time when they were visiting their relative and they all got in the car, we, they noticed that something had changed because right away he put his seatbelt on, click. And they're like, wow, hey, what happened? We don't have to even nag you. You actually put the seatbelt on. And he explained that uh, a couple weeks ago he had visited a friend of his that had been in a car crash. And lo and behold, he wasn't wearing his seatbelt. And he took 200 stitches in his face. And that all of a sudden changed his thinking. They said, did you get some, like, new information? I mean, didn't you understand, like, windshields can really mess up your face? No. Now I see why it's important. See, God doesn't want us just to, like, well, I believe that the Bible is the word of God and it has no bearing on our life. He wants us to see the need. It's kind of like Jonathan Edwards, that very famous 16th century American pastor and theologian, what he would talk about is that you've got to come to a place where you attach yourself to the truth. Why you see, I need this truth and I believe it. It's not just something I know, it's something I live. When you go from like, yeah, yeah, I know that too. Lord, I need this. Teach me your ways. Direct my wayward heart back to you. Give me wisdom. I need wisdom. I need strength. I need your guidance. When you've got a heart because you want to know, then what happens is, the word of God starts taking that transformational effect upon your life. You see, the word of God is given to transform our way of life. And I'd like to just close with a poem that I, I found years ago. It's written honestly. It's about for those who desire to grow in their relationship with God. It's about the Bible. 
This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It's a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given to you here in this life, will be opened at the judgment, and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemns all who trifle with its contents. It's the book of books, God's book, the revelation of God to man. Let's pray. Lord, what a powerful passage. You've revealed what this book is. It is words from you, inspired by you. And you've revealed why it's been given to transform our lives. And so, Father, if there is someone here who has come here today who's never truly trusted Christ, but You've been working to bring them to this place of faith and belief in the Son. Would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin, and I take you at your word. I believe, and I trust in Jesus this morning. Lead me and guide me. And Lord, for all of us, we literally want to experience the fullness of life, to be transformed by your truth, to be everything as individual believers and as a church you've intended. So, Lord, have your way with us. May the word of God be our way of life. Give us a delight and a joy in your son and a hunger and thirst for you. And accomplish your work through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.